All right, in your Bibles again, Mark 12, Matthew 7, Deuteronomy 25. Um, we have a few short announcements for you today. Uh, tonight at 7 p.m., we are going to continue to look through the book of Exodus live online on our Facebook Live. And uh, that's at www.newlifecalvary.com. We are going right through the Bible, and we're talking about it verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We've been having a great time in that study. Uh, tonight, we're going to talk about uh, Moses getting a touch overwhelmed. And uh, so if you've ever been overwhelmed, then you will be able to take a look and say, well, there's some really good principles that are outlined there. And uh, we have sound. Awesome. We did not have sound on the last couple of weeks, but this week we do. Okay, so for the live feed, that is cool. Um, so tonight, that's live. Uh, we also a answer questions that you might have online. Um, and uh, we had a great time last week uh, looking at the manna God provided from heaven. And this week, it's going to be, again, about Moses counseling uh, just all the children of Israel and his father-in-law saying, son, check yourself before you wreck yourself. Uh, so we're going to take a look at some biblical principles about how to do just that. That's tonight at 7. Uh, for those of you that have been going, we've been going through a 40-day challenge. Um, this is a little devotional that we came up with uh, a few years ago. If we had 40 days to uh, take a look and see what we wanted to teach about how to navigate God's Word, you know, about the foundations of Christianity, baptism, how to read your Bibles. That's what this 40-day challenge has been about. So we've been texting that out in the morning, um, and I pray that that has been beneficial, because right now it's about laying foundation, making disciples to make disciples, and that's all part of it. And you'll see why that's really, really, really important today through our study. Um, also, uh, the well is meeting on Wednesday, uh, Monday night at 7.30, Monday night at 7.30 at 1070 Audace Avenue. If you have questions about where that is, please see the man in the light blue shirt as the sunglasses up but not on. Um, Gooch, could you raise your hand, please? Now he's got his sunglasses on. Okay, cool. Um, so that's uh, when uh, Monday night at 7.30. Wow, wow, wow. Uh, Wednesday night, we are not here. <laughs> I love that. I love it when we say we're not here. Oh, no. No, we are somewhere, though. We're going to be at our house. Um, we're going to have a night of worship and a night of prayer, and it is much needed. So we're going to have food there. It's going to be a night of worship. It's going to be a night of prayer. We're not going to send the bus out, but if you have children, you can bring them. Um, but we're not sending the bus out that night to uh, do pickups. Um, so that is going to be a night of worship and prayer at the Panico House. If you need directions or you'd like to attend, we would love to have you attend with us on Wednesday night. I said there would be a special announcement today. There is a special announcement. It's special to me. Um, working in my father's butcher store 20 years ago, I wrote a screenplay about dad's butcher store. It was when I was not working with the Lord, walking with the Lord, or working with the Lord. Either one, I wasn't doing it. Um, and I haven't written a screenplay since. And uh, when we went to go see the movie Overcomer uh, a few weeks ago uh, during the little hurricane break we had, um, God put something on my heart, a story. We just finished it from tip to tail, from the very beginning to the very end, uh, scripted a story that we think needs to be told. Um, it is faith-based, completely Christian-based. The gospel goes forth in power and in truth in it. And uh, we're praying. We don't know what to do next, uh, but the Lord does. So we just finished this thing. If you'd like to read it, we'd love to send it. Um, it's, uh, it's pretty cool. So uh, I'm really excited about this because who knows what the Lord is going to do. When the Kendrick brothers started their journey, War Room and Courageous, they did the first movie called Flywheel 
on a shoestring budget of twenty thousand dollars, and uh, and then they went to facing the giants, and then the rest is history. We've enjoyed their movies, and they've proclaimed Christ loudly. So uh, who knows what the Lord can do? So it's good stuff. Uh, with that said, better stuff right here. The Word of God, and uh, these studies again as Jesus is getting closer to the cross. The attacks are getting ramped up, and we're just going to see this continue to play out today as we're walking with Jesus through the Gospel of Mark. And uh, we're going to read starting at verse 18. Um, Mark 12, 18. Then some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus, and they asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind, and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and dying, he left no offspring. And the second took her, and he died. Nor did he leave any offspring. And the third likewise. So the seven had her, and left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as a wife. Jesus answered and said to them, Are you therefore not mistaken? Because you do not know the Scriptures, nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like angels in heaven. But concerning the dead, that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken. Father God, you are the God of the living. You are the resurrection and the life. And for this, Lord, we know that when a life receives this truth, repents of their sin, receives this truth, indeed a life unleashed, and yet sometimes we can feel so powerless. Today, refresh our hearts. Renew our spirit. Revitalize us, God. Speak clearly through your word. And let us come to you with humble hearts that we may indeed receive it make the changes necessary, and grow in the likeness of your Son. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In front of me, I have one of the greatest inventions known to man. Not this. This. One of the greatest inventions known to man is the pencil with eraser. The pencil with eraser. You see, the eraser 
was made in 1770. The patent was made by an English engineer named Edward Nairn. How many of you have heard of Ed, Ed Nairn? Anybody? Absolutely not. Edward Nairn. Nobody's heard of Edward Nairn. But you've also not heard, most likely, of Hyman Lipman, who almost a 100 years later, on March 30th, 1858, Hyman Lipman received the first patent for attaching an eraser to the end of the pencil. How many of you knew that? Hyman Lipman. All right. If we could, we would all write thank you letters to Hyman Lipman. We didn't know this, okay? He's a name that we don't know because though he created the patent for it, after they gave him the patent, the patent was revoked shortly thereafter because they said it wasn't an original invention. They said that it was actually a composite of two devices, the pencil and the eraser. So they took away the patent, but we still have the pencil. And again, it's something we have all benefited from. Uh, it's an invention that we have most likely neglected. Um, but whether you have ever been taking a test and written down the wrong answer and you had to do one of these things, or you bubbled in the wrong answer, for those of you that did not Christmas tree your tests, you bubbled in the wrong answer, you used the eraser. Uh, the year 2019 came around and you were still writing 18 and now you would try to erase it and you would, you know, change it with your pencil. And so we've all used this and we've all benefited from it. And when you think about it, it really is pretty cool because it's as simple as flipping your pencil over and getting rid of the thing that you made them the, the, the getting rid of the mistake you made, right? That's pretty simple. And would that life would be that simple if all of our mistakes we could just get rid of with an eraser just like that. Just like that, they would be gone. But you know this, um, that life is not that simple. And as we talk about our message topic today, we've titled the message, Things You Don't Want to Be Wrong About, Mistakes That You Don't Want to Make. Uh, we know that there are some mistakes that are greater than others. Most mistakes cannot be simply erased. A mistake in its very nature and in its definition, it's defined as an error in calculation, opinion, or judgment caused by poor reasoning, carelessness, or insufficient knowledge. So it's an error in calculation, opinion, or judgment, and it's made because there's poor reasoning, carelessness, or insufficient knowledge. One thing that everybody in this room has in common is that we have all made mistakes. We've all made mistakes. Whether it be the small, seemingly silly mistake of maybe spilling a drink, getting someone's name wrong, or dialing the wrong number. Uh, maybe some of you have left your car on. Uh, the battery, uh, your lights and the battery went dead because of it. Um, some mistakes are a bigger deal than that. How many of you have ever misplaced your wallet with all of your identification in it? All right. A few years ago, we left our cell phone on top of the car. All right. Mistake. Okay, that was a big one. That was a very costly mistake. Um, some mistakes are whoppers. You can ask Steve Harvey, who in 2017 mistakenly announced Miss Columbia instead of Miss Philippines as the winner of the Miss Universe pageant. That was a big one. All right. But then you would also agree that there are some mistakes that are life-changing. 
some mistakes that can alter the course of someone's life. It was a wrong turn that you made that ended up in an accident. It was the decision to get behind the wheel drunk and you lost your license because of it. It was a relationship that you got involved in and that relationship kind of changed the trajectory of everything. And what I think we would all agree on is that often the size of the mistake is proportional to the consequence of that mistake. Not always, not always, thank God. But often the size of the mistake is proportional to the consequence of that mistake. Today, the Sadducees make a doozy. The Sadducees make a very... Big mistake. You would think that they would have learned. Last week we talked about how the Pharisees and the Herodians, they confronted Jesus in front of the crowd and they asked him the question, hey Jesus, uh, do we have to pay our taxes? And they ended up with egg on their face. You remember what Jesus did. He said, give me a coin please. And they gave him the coin and he said, who's that engraved image on that coin? That's Caesar. We'll give to Caesar what Caesar's and that's the end of the conversation. Now you'd think that the Sadducees might have taken the hint and said, you know what? I think we're going to step away. I don't think we're going to challenge him. But that's not what they did. They did not learn from the Pharisees and the Herodians. Instead, now, today, they're going to make their own mistake. Now, as a kid growing up, my father had a devotional in the bathroom. And some of the greatest wisdom uh, I've ever read, I saw in that devotional, and it read something like this. A smart man learns from his own mistakes, but a wise man profits from the mistakes of others. And so now you have the Sadducees, and uh, they're going to take a shot at Jesus because they're all, remember, the Pharisees, Sadducees, as now Jesus, they've heard that he resurrected Lazarus and his ministry is coming to a close. Everybody is taking their last licks. They're taking their last shots. Um, and we're going to see that Jesus will tell them not once, but twice they're mistaken in their approach and in what they say and in how they approach it. Now, as Christians, we know this, is that our belief system, what, what we believe, determines what happens to us not just here and now, but for all of eternity. If perhaps you were wrong about your belief as a Christian, if you were wrong about it, well, the worst thing that you could happen is that, well, at the end of your life, you, you know, you lived and you lived like Jesus and then you died. But if people are mistaken about Christianity, what hangs in the balance is their life here and into all of eternity. So there are some mistakes that you don't want to make. So who are these folks called the Sadducees that we see in verse 18 that we're introduced to? Okay, again, the Sadducees, these were the priests for the most part. They were the ruling class. Caiaphas was a high priest. He would have been a Sadducee. They were a liberal sect of religious Jews, and they were not really spiritual at all. They were more materialistic. They controlled the religious system. They out, they were outnumbered by the Pharisees, yet they were in control, and they did not treat people well. The Sadducees had a reputation for treating people terribly. They did not believe in angels. They did not believe in spirits, and they did not believe in the resurrection. They were Sadducees. They didn't believe in life after death. That's why they were so sad, you see? Okay. Okay. And I can't take credit for that. That's 50 other billion preachers that have, have a worse sense of humor than I do. Um, <laughs> they believed in the first five books of the Bible and that's it. They believed in the Torah. 
<laughs> they believed in the Torah. They believed in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And uh, we're going to see now as we break this down that they're going to they're going to approach Jesus with this absolutely ridiculous scenario. Uh, so let's read again verse 18 of chapter 12 where it says, Then some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him, and they asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies, leaves his wife behind, leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. And again, he goes into the scenario with seven brothers and uh, and skip down to verse 22 because we read this a couple of moments ago. So the seven had her and left no offspring. Last of died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as a wife. Stop right there. Now they're looking at Jesus going, ha! We've got you. Just kind of like they did last week with the Pharisees and the Herodians going, we've got him now, guys. We've got him now. We've got him boxed into a corner. He's not going to be able to find an answer for this one because the idea of resurrection to them was so ridiculous, all it did was complicate things. And so what they did was they took some of the scripture that they did understand, that they thought they understood, Deuteronomy 25.5, and we're going to read it just for a moment. And they took this one verse... And what they're going to do is twist it and turn it and manipulate it to serve their own agenda. Kind of like Satan does. Deuteronomy 25.5, it says, If a brother dwells together, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as a wife, and perform the duty of husband's brother to her. Stop right there. You get the point that this was something that was important. It was included in the books of law uh, by Moses, inspired by the Spirit. So this idea of a brother uh, assuming the role once his brother had passed, it's important in Scripture. How important is it? Well, in Genesis 38, there's the story of a man named Judah. He's one of the sons of Israel. Judah's son married Tamar. He died. So his second son married Tamar. He died. Two reasons not to marry Tamar. All right? He promised that his third son would marry Tamar, but when it came time and he was old enough, he withheld his son from her, and so that son lived. No, that's not left. All right? So what she did was, well, Tamar said, well, you know what? He didn't make good on his word. So here's what I'm going to do. She deceives him, acts like a prostitute, sleeps with him, gets pregnant. The result is this, is that the child of that relationship is in the family tree of Jesus as per Matthew 1. See, the idea that was put forth in Deuteronomy 25.5, the essence of the idea was important. The brother assuming responsibility for the widow. But you get another great picture of it in the story that Anthony went over a few weeks ago with Ruth. Ruth and Boaz. Ruth's husband died. There were no brothers next in the family. Boaz was one of the next of kin, and he assumed the responsibility. Significance? Their offspring? you can also find in the line of Jesus in Matthew 1. So this is pretty important, Deuteronomy 25.5, but it's also important that we understand it in the context. What the Sadducees have done here is they've said, you know what? 
We're going to use Scripture to serve our own agenda, like so many people in the church are doing today. They will take a verse out of context. We're going to see the danger of that as we go on today. They take this verse out of context. They come up with this ridiculous scenario of the seven brothers, and all the brothers die, and when they get to heaven, well, what's the problem? Well, the real problem is this, and Jesus is going to call them out on it. You see, what we're not going to do is we're not going to go through the scenario and say, well, then there's the first brother, then there's the second brother, then there's the third brother, and try to, we're not going to go through that. We're not even going to address that, and here's why. Because Jesus didn't. Jesus didn't even address it. The real problem was they had a misunderstanding of resurrection. They had a misunderstanding of angels. And here's the thing is that when we have a misunderstanding of Scripture, it kind of bleeds into our lives. Every decision we make, the way that we see the world, how we respond to it. All right? And so what he does is he answers their question with a question. Let's look at verse 24. It says, Jesus answered and said to them, Oh, are you not therefore mistaken? Because you do not know the Scriptures nor the power of God. They went through all this work to concoct this scenario. They handed in their assignment and they got an epic fail, is what they did. How many of you in school ever did the wrong assignment? You thought the teacher said, hey, look at this page and you studied this page or do a report on this and you did a report on something else and when you handed it in, you were sitting there and you were like, oh boy, I really messed this up, didn't I? But how many of us live our lives like that? How many are pursuing things that are not of God? All right? And at the end of our life, if we're going to be asked to give an account for what we did with what we had, some people are going to hand in their Academy Awards. Some are going to hand in their Heisman trophies. Some are going to show their bank account. And they're going to say, well, what about all this? What about this? And he's going to, all that stuff doesn't matter. The only thing that really mattered was what you did with my son. You guys were spent your life pursuing the wrong assignment, and that's exactly what they did. Years ago, uh, John Piper, uh, speaking to about 40,000 youth uh, at the Passion Conference, came up with an illustration that went a little bit like this. It was the story of Bob and Penny. And Bob and Penny, well, they, um, they took their retirement, they were, he was 59, she was 51, they moved to Punta Gorda, and uh, where they decided to cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. They decided to collect shells. Piper says, that's a tragedy, he told the crowd. And there are people in this country that are spending billions of dollars to get you to buy it. I get 40 minutes, he said, to plead with you, don't buy it. With all my heart, I plead for you, don't buy that dream. You see... At the last chapter of your life, the last thing that you want to do is stand before the Creator and He's going to say, what did you did? Well, what did you do with what you had? And now you present Him your shell collection. Alright? What you don't want to do is hand in the wrong assignment to God. Alright? Because it has everything to do with the Son He sent to die on a cross so that He could have relationship with you that would change the way that you look at everything that you did and everything that you had. There are some things that we do not want to get wrong. 
And so he gets very specific now and he says, here's the source of your mistake. We have to get to the root of your mistake. The root of the mistake, he says, is because you do not know Scripture nor the power of God. And he says both of these things simultaneously, you don't know Scripture and you don't know the power of God because you can't know one without the other. These things are so linked together. The Scripture and the power of God. And we're going to take one at a time. He says, the reason that you have been mistaken is because you have no understanding. Now, this is a big thing for him to say to the religious leaders. All right? He's saying, you don't know Scripture. You don't know the Bible. It would be a terrible thing for me as a pastor for you to come up to me and say, you have no idea what's in that book, John. That would be bad. All right? If you were a mechanic... We found you on the side of the road. Your tire went flat. I drove up to you and I said, well, what's going on? Well, my tire's flat. Do you have a spare? Yeah. Why don't you change it? I don't know how to. Wait a second. You're a mechanic that doesn't know how to change a tire? Now, if you drove up to my car and I was flat on the side of the road, you'd say, well, Pastor John, don't you know how to change a tire? And Pastor John would say, not so much. All right. <laughs> I'm kidding, I can change a tire. But if I get stuck, I'd like your help. <laughs> All right, so he goes, you have the wrong ideas, religious leaders, teachers of Israel. You have the wrong ideas because you have not read the instructions. And as a man who at times in my life has struggled to read instructions, I can relate. But this is regarding life. All right, we teach our kids that this book is the basic instructions before leaving earth. That's what they have in front of them. So shame on us if we don't know it, and not only if we don't know it, but we don't teach it. Now listen, Scripture is like knowing a person, okay? Because there are some times that you can know someone without knowing them, if you know what I mean. There are plenty of people that know Scripture, that can quote Scripture, all right, They know where to find something in the Bible, but they don't know what it means. And this holds true with any relationship in this life, whether it be our relationship to, say, the Grand Canyon. I know about the Grand Canyon, but I've never experienced the Grand Canyon. Ask me about the Atlantic Ocean. Oh, I've had some experience with the Atlantic Ocean. I like it very much. I know Mel Gibson. I know his movies, but I don't know Mel Gibson. If you said, John, why don't you call him over and I ask him over for lunch? Well, I don't know him. I don't have a relationship with him. Sadducees, you might have a knowledge of Scripture. You might know some Scripture, but you don't know Scripture and you don't know the God behind Scripture. So you can know someone without really knowing them. Some of you have found this out the hard way. We see this on the news when somebody commits some kind of a heinous crime. And they're interviewing the neighbors, and they say, well, he never seemed like that kind of person, but I didn't really know him. Some of you have dated someone. And the more you dated them, the more you found out you didn't really know them at all. So you can know someone without necessarily knowing them. And you can know the Word without knowing the Word. And so you can know the Word without knowing the living Word, Jesus, and without knowing God. All right, this is pretty terrifying, quite honestly. And here's why. In Matthew 7, there's a positively, to me, terrifying verse. 
In Matthew 7, 21. And this is right towards the end of one of Jesus' longest teachings in Scripture. And a lot of you, as soon as I said Matthew 7, knew exactly where I was going. He says here, Not everyone who says to Me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of My Father in heaven. Many will say to Me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in Your name, cast out demons in Your name, and done many wonders in Your name? And then I will declare to them, saying, I never what? I never knew You. Depart from Me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, when you look at that, you say, wow, I hope that's not me. I really hope that's not me. Pastor John, do you think that's me? Listen, the people who that, the people who he's describing there are not people that care to even ask the question. On the last day when they're faced with the consequences of what they did, they're going to be the ones that are saying, ah, uh, are we cool? And he's going to say, no, we're really not. All right. But for the people that are sitting there saying, I repented of my sins, I'm struggling with weakness. Struggling with weakness is one thing. Struggling, struggling with utter rebellion is something completely different. And on that last day, there are going to be so many that say, oh, but, but Lord, I went to church, I did this, I, did, I, I didn't know you though. We didn't have a relationship. This is really, really important. Sadducees at this point, do you think that they might fall into that category? I think so. Right? The Sadducees at this moment would say, oh, we know God, we're His representatives, but you can know God without really knowing Him. That's why Scripture is important. We don't want to make this some legalistic message about, oh, well, you're a bad Christian if you don't read your Bible. Alright, that's not what this is. What this is, is to say, listen, this is how God reveals who He is. And if this is how He reveals who He is, and this is how He reveals who you are, then why wouldn't you want to read it? If this unlocks the mystery and this is truly the key of life, then what we want is to understand. Because when I go here, I understand this. And when I understand this, I can look out at the world and I can understand that. Not only can I understand that, but I can know what to do about that. How to respond to what I'm seeing out there. But it's only through these lenses. When His Word is speaking to me with His Spirit, an understanding of the Word. There were so many that approached Jesus that knew Scripture, but they didn't know God. And that's where they made the mistake. And the same thing can be said of the church today. Listen. Scripture, the Word of God, builds the church. There have been eras in history where the church took control over the Word and manipulated the Word to say what they wanted it to say. But that's not how the church of Jesus Christ is built. The church is built on the Word, not vice versa. This is something you do not want to be wrong about. Because people that deny Scripture, they deny the veracity of it, they deny the truth of it, well, they're walking around this world as blind men. But people with the wrong interpretation of Scripture, they just walk around really confused. Is it more about works? Is it more about... Well, I mean, what, what, is it, what is it about? And they take everything out of context. That's why there's this thing that we're doing, and it's called 
It's called, I'm going to give you a term here. It's what we're doing Wednesday night as we're doing these Bible studies about learning how to open up this book and say, what does it say? What does it mean? What does it mean to me? It's something called exegesis. This term is really important. Exegesis. Wow, that's a really good word. No, it's not a hard term. It just means is that you're trying not to take your ideas and read them into the Bible. What you're trying to do is saying, God, this is your word. This is truth. And I want to start with truth and see how you're going to speak to me rather than me trying to change truth because of what I want my life to be like. Listen, if I determine truth on what I want my life to be like, then basically I'm determining what this book should say. I don't know about you, but whenever I've tried to run my own life and I haven't given it to God and I've tried to determine it, Things don't work out so well. So the last thing you want me to do is to rewrite the Bible. And yet, so often in the church today, they might as well be selling the Bibles in pencil. So that you can take the things that you don't like and say, oh, I don't like that part. Forgiving? Nope. Loving? No. Loving the enemies? Definitely not. Alright, but I do like this part. That says, my God shall supply all your needs. Matter of fact, let me boldface that, let me highlight it, and let me emphasize it. We love those verses. But what we don't want to do is rewrite this book. We need to know Scripture. Meditating on it. Not just what it says, but what it means. And what God is calling us to do in our life because of it. This is really important for the Christian. He says, not only do you not know the Scripture, but what goes hand in hand with that is that you do not know the power of God. Sadducees were powerless in their ministry. Oh, they were considered powerful from the people because they had positions. But when Jesus came along, they looked utterly powerless. They looked like fools because they claimed to have the power of God but they didn't have the power of God. They were not acquainted with the power of God. See, the link between Scripture and the power of God is that when the Holy Spirit is in you, you're reading the Word of God, all right, and you're seeing all these things that God has done through the course of history, creating all things out of nothing. Now, now the Sadducees had access to this. They had access to these Scriptures. And consider, if you were in Scripture and you were meditating on the Scripture, then your God was this God. He created all things out of nothing. He helped Noah and a family of eight build an ark before power tools were created. He parted the sea for the children of Israel. Forget about the stories of David and Elijah and Elisha and Daniel. If they were really meditating in Scripture and looking to the power of God, they would see it because it was right there, right there in front of them. In 2 Kings 5, there is a soldier, a Syrian soldier, his name is Naaman. And Naaman has leprosy. And he's told, well, if you go to Israel, there's a man in Israel that can heal you. So what does Naaman do? He picks up and he goes to the king. The king says, I can't heal you. Ahab said, I, I can't heal you. I can't do anything about this. Ahab got so upset, he thought that the king of Syria was picking a fight with him. He tears his clothes. When the prophet Elisha heard it, he said, you know what? Bring him to me. Bring the man to me. The king couldn't heal him, but the man of God could. That's where the power was. The power wasn't with King Ahab. The power was with the man or the woman of God. Now, here's what you have. 
talking about all, oh, you Sadducees, you don't have the Scripture and you don't have the power of God. You have both. You have the Word of God and you have the Spirit of God. You have four accounts of the life of Jesus. Living Word. He said, I'm coming to make my dwelling place in the power of the Holy Spirit. That. And you have stories about Him overcoming temptation and saying, peace be still to the storm and resurrect the dead. This is power that is dwelling in you. You have the Word in front of you. You have the Spirit inside of you. You have both. The Sadducees, the Sadducees were ignorant of both. And in today's society, some Christians are ignorant of this. And I say that because I love Calvary Chapel. I love the heart of the movement the start, because there was a beautiful balance that was taught between the teaching of the Word and the reliance and the dependence on the power of the Holy Spirit. The reason you see so much powerlessness in the church today is because there are some sects of the church, well, they believe in Scripture, but they kind of believe that the gifts of the Spirit don't work quite like they did in the book of Acts, That not like that they work in the, in the rest of the New Testament. They believe that once Scripture was complete that there was no longer a need for those gifts. I don't see that in Scripture. And it's for a couple of simple reasons, and we could do a whole series of messages on this alone. I believe that the Holy Spirit works today just as powerfully because, one, we're up against the same enemy they were up against. The enemy hasn't lightened his attack at all. The way that he fights us is still the same, so we need the same power that we see at work. The second reason is because of this. The second reason is because the Bible teaches about the gifts in the letters, the letters that were passed on to us as inspired Scripture. And it teaches about these giftings. This is significant. But here's the thing. What we can do is we can say, well, the Holy Spirit doesn't work like that anymore, and we can teach the Word. Sometimes it'll even be inspiring, but it'll absolutely be limiting. On the other hand, you have some churches that swing the pendulum the other day, and it's all Holy Ghost power. You walk into the church, and they'll take a section of Scripture, they'll take a chunk of Scripture, and Holy Ghost power! Holy Ghost power! Sorry, I get a little bit excited. <laughs> so there's a part of me, I guess, that wanted to go that way. But I can't, because of the truth of Scripture. All right? And it's all this emotional experience. And what happens is, is that the intellect and the intelligence of the teaching goes bye-bye. And so there's a balance between the Word and the Spirit. It has been said like this. The Word without the Spirit is powerless. The Spirit without the Word is pointless. No direction. It's also been said like this. If you have the Word but not the Spirit, you will dry up. If you have the Word, you will blow up. If you have the Spirit and the Word, you will grow up. We need the balance between the Spirit and the Word of God. This is something the Sadducees are missing then, and it's something that we can't necessarily say sometimes that the church is not missing now. Over the course of many years, the Sadducees, these religious leaders, they had learned to rely on their own power, on their own resources. God, the glory of God had departed the children of Israel. 
many, many years before that. And now all these different regimes, the Babylonians first, then the Medes and the Persians, then the Greeks, then the Romans, they were just basically taking their licks in, uh, in different doses for the children of Israel. But here you had these Sadducees, and they thought they were powerful, but they were very, very materialistic with the power of God in front of them. They did not realize it. How terrible would that be? Could you imagine how terrible it would be to say that you were the one that walked this planet during the same time that your Creator did, and you didn't even recognize Him as He revealed Himself. How terrible would that be? But the power of God is still at work in the world today, and we don't want to miss it. We do not want to live what is called the powerless Christian life. There's a story of a lady, and she lived out in the boonies, as one would say. And as she lived out in the boonies, she didn't have electricity, but she wanted it. So she called the electric company, and they made arrangements so she could have a line that would go to her house to give her electricity. She was so excited. After six months, though, someone came, someone noticed at the electric company, they noticed that only one unit of electricity was being used. So they sent out a serviceman to make sure that there was no problem. They rang the doorbell. Miss, are you using your electricity? Yes, I am, she answered. May I ask what exactly you're using it for? Well, when it gets dark... I turn it on long enough for me to light my lamp, my kerosene lamp, and then I shut it off. (laughs) The woman did not understand the power of electricity. And at the same time, in the same way, so often we can limit the Christian experience maybe to a church service, maybe to a worship experience. Our worship is meant to be a lifestyle. When we are connected with God, we are truly connected, and that's where the power is. But the Sadducees had made a grave mistake. And because of this mistake, we go back to Mark, where we read, Verse 25. Now Jesus is going to get right to the core of the issue. He's going to say, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of heaven. But concerning the dead that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses, the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Stop right there. The first thing that he does, he addresses a false belief system. This is the importance of what we're going to say. What they didn't know affected how they saw everything and what they did about it. Right? Think about it now. We're going to give an example. Jesus is going to get very specific. You don't know the power of God. You don't know the Scripture. And so you're not able to interpret out there, and so you've come up with this ridiculous scenario, but here's the thing. A false belief system about God, well, it will influence how you see the world, what you do about it, and again, what he sees here is, and what he emphasizes here is the importance of what we call theology. Now, whenever you see L-O-G-Y, whenever you hear something that ends in ology or like biology or something like that, it's the study of something. All right. Biology, it's the study of life. Psychology is the study of the soul. Theology is the study of God. The study of God is neglected today, but really, 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 really important today. Here's why. 
Because again, what you believe about this God determines how you see everything and what you do about it. That's your theology. So, in other words, if you're struggling with weakness, it helps your theology, your theology, if you understand that God is all-powerful. If you're feeling weak, right? That's pretty important. When you're feeling weak, that your theology, I believe He's all-powerful. When your life seems out of control, when the world seems out of control, it's pretty important to your theology to believe that God is sovereign. That's important. Times when you feel alone, it's important that we realize that God is omnipresent. He's present everywhere. Times when you're feeling worthless, it's important in your theology to realize that He thought so much of you that He sent His Son to die on a cross for you. When your world is in turmoil, to remember that we can have peace because the Bible says, your theology says, you will keep Him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon you. These things are important. And if I have a mistaken belief about God, I'm going to be mistaken in my judgments in this life about the things that are happening sometimes right in front of me. I'll be measuring with the wrong standard and it will be a mistake because of it. There's a story of a king, perhaps some of you read it when you were younger. Once upon a time, there was a king and his wife. and They were a happy couple, for they had everything in the world. However, when the queen's birthday came near, the king had a problem. What do you get someone who has everything? The king thought and he thought and he thought until suddenly he had an idea. He would give the queen a bed. And when he said bed, people were like, well, bed had not been invented yet. So this was his idea. He came up with the invention of the bed. The queen did not have a bed because at the time beds had not been invented. So even someone who had everything didn't have a bed. So the king called the prime minister, asked him to please have a bed made. The prime minister called the chief carpenter and asked him to please have a bed made. The chief carpenter called the apprentice, told him to make a bed. How big is a bed? He said, I don't know. I don't know what a bed is. So he asked the apprentice. They described what a bed was. How big should it be? The carpenter asked the prime minister. Good question, said the prime minister. And he asked the king, how big is a bed? The king thought and he thought and he thought until suddenly he had an idea. The bed must be big enough to fit the queen. And so the king called the queen. He told her to put her new pajamas on and lay on the floor. And she said, lay on the floor. Just lay on the floor. So she laid on the floor. The king took off his shoes and he had these gigantic feet, and he walked carefully around the queen. He counted that the bed must be three feet wide and six feet long to be big enough to fit the queen. The king said thank you to the queen, told the prime minister, who told the chief carpenter, who told the apprentice. The apprentice built the bed three of the king's feet by six feet. The apprentice said thank you. When the king saw the bed, he said, this is beautiful. He could not wait for the queen's birthday. Instead, he called the queen at once, and he told her to put on her new pajamas. Then he brought out the bed and told the queen to try it. But the bed was much too small for the queen. The king was so angry that he immediately called the prime minister, who called the chief carpenter, who called the jailer this time, and they threw the apprentice in jail. The apprentice was unhappy. Why was the bed too small for the queen? He thought and he thought and he thought until suddenly he had an idea. A bed that was three king's feet wide and six king's feet long was naturally 
bigger than a bed that was three apprentices' feet wide and three and six apprentices' feet long. I can make a bed to fit the queen if I know the size of the king's foot. And so he took a mold of the king's foot and he created this bed that was three feet wide by six feet long. And they all lived happily ever after. But the point of the story is, what, what is that? What is the whole story about? The story is this, is that if we're measuring by the wrong standard, we're going to be mistaken. And if it's not by God's rule, and if we're not going by what God says in His Word, we're going to be making a lot of mistakes. And so the one mistake He says here is like, listen, when they rise from the dead, because they do rise from the dead, that's the truth, He says. They neither marry nor are given in marriage. And He gets very specific with this example. You gave me this ridiculous idea of seven brothers and they all die, but here's the thing. They do rise from the dead. And it says, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And he's about to show them why they're mistaken, and he's about to use the truth of God's Word to do it. Now think about this. How many of you have ever looked at that passage and said, what does that even mean? They're not going to be married, they're not going to be given in marriage, but they're going to be like the angels of heaven. What do you have in common with angels? We're made by God. What do we have in common with angels? We will exist for eternity. What is different about us than angels? No flesh? That's right. We're made in the image of God. The angels cannot boast that. The angels are in the presence of God, but are spirit beings. We are on earth, physical beings, and in order to be in the presence of God, to be in the presence of God, we have to take our last breath on this planet. This is significant, and here's why. They're not married, nor are they given in marriage. Why is that? You have to go back towards the construct of it all. Why is the Christian given marriage? In our marriages, hopefully, we can come to a better understanding of the love of God. We're fallen creatures, and when we uh, partner with other fallen people that are sinners saved by grace, we have a greater example of the love of God, but also this. Marriage has been given to display to the world the love of Jesus for his church. That is why we've been given marriage. Listen to this, because we're living in a fallen world, and the Christian marriage is supposed to shout out to the world the relationship between Jesus and his bride. The angels don't have that. The angels that have fallen are fallen with no chance of redemption. But for us, we have these relationships that we've been blessed with, and it's hard for us to wrap our mind around, because quite honestly, I can't imagine not being married to my wife in heaven. I can't. I can't imagine that it would be heaven without her. And many of you take a look and you say, well, I can't imagine heaven without intimacy as we know it. All right, some of you have struggled with that. Is there going to be that kind of intimacy? You know what I'm talking about. All right, is there going to be that kind of intimacy in heaven? We can't imagine life without that. Most of us that have not been gifted with celibacy cannot imagine a heaven without that. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. 
When we get to heaven, the thing that's going to be all important is is that we're going to be reunited with the one and only bridegroom. There will be no need for the marital relationship as we understand it. But we don't know exactly what it's going to look like in heaven. But here's what we do know. And this we know because of the word of God. In his presence is the fullness of joy. We know that what makes heaven heaven is the presence of Jesus Christ. And when you get there, you're not going to get to heaven and you're going to say, this kind of, I don't like this. I don't like this at all. You know what? It's like if you've, you know, as a kid going to Disney World, it was very excited unless you went in August. All right. In August, it's 105 degrees. You're waiting on three hour lines and you're saying, this isn't exactly what I thought it would be, but there's Mickey Mouse. Who cares? It's hot. It's not what you thought it was going to be. You're not going to get to heaven and say, well, this, I don't like the accommodations. Do we have an option B, God? No, we don't. This is it. It's called heaven. And when we get there, nobody's going to get there and say, oh, you know what? I wish it was a little bit different. But then Jesus gets even more specific with them, drills down to the core and the heart of their belief. He said, listen, even in your own scriptures, you don't get it. Even in your own scriptures, he said, when Moses was at the burning bush, and this is in the scriptures that you all accept, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Let's do a simple Bible study, Sadducees. The simple Bible study will go like this. It's one verse. Can you handle that, Sadducees? It reads like this. God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He doesn't say, I was. He doesn't say, I might be. He doesn't say, I aspire to be. He says, I am. And when Jesus came, he said, I am a few times too. He said, I am the bread of life. I am the gate. I am the door. I am the shepherd. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Jesus is. He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. And that affects how you live. The Sadducees were materialistic. Why? Because they didn't believe and this, this is, gets to the core. What you believe about God is so important. The Sadducees didn't believe there was a hereafter. All they believed that there was a right now. And if there's a right now, you're going to be more materialistic. The more you believe about heaven, the more you understand that, the more you'll be living for the things of heaven. The more you'll be living for the things of heaven. So the bottom line is this. There are some things that you just don't want to be wrong about. If you don't know Scriptures, you won't know the power of God. If you don't know the power of God, you're not going to be able to solve the problems of this life. You're not going to know what to think about them, let alone what to do about them. And these implications have consequences here and into eternity. I want to close you with a quick story about Tony Bennett. How many of you have heard of Tony Bennett? No, you haven't. Most of you know the Tony Bennett that is the, uh, the big band singer. I left my heart in San Francisco. I'm not going to do that. But another Tony Bennett recently made the headlines. There you go. Ah. Another Tony Bennett made the headlines. This Tony Bennett was one that declined what his employer called a substantial raise so others could make more money. The one who, after his Virginia Cavaliers won this year's NCAA National Basketball Championship, told his players, promise me you will remain humble and thankful for this. Don't let this change you. It doesn't have to. It's that Tony Bennett that made headlines recently. Not just for what he does, but for who he is. When his team won the National 
title last April, Bennett told a post-game interviewer, I do want to thank my Lord and Savior. He regularly prays for his players in the hope that they'll be able to find the truth in their lives that has really transformed my life. He has built his basketball program around the biblical principles of humility, passion, unity, servanthood, and thankfulness. He calls them the five pillars. He posts them in the Virginia's locker room and emphasizes them in everything the team does. It's therefore not surprising that when the University of Virginia offered Bennett a large raise as a reward for winning the national title, the coach turned it down. Oh, I have more than I need, he said. I'm blessed beyond what I deserve. He credits his wife, Laurel, with the decision to redirect the money into additional compensation for his staff and improvements to their program. He and Laurel have also pledged 500000 toward a career development program for current and former Virginia basketball players. Coach Bennett has life figured out. He says, if my life is just about winning championships, if it's just about being the best, then I'm running the wrong race, he says. That's empty. But if it's about trying to be excellent and do things the right way to honor the university that's hired you, the athletic director you work for, and the young men you're coaching, always in the process of trying to bring glory to God, then that's the right thing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, oh, that we would come to a greater understanding of your word, of your power. God, I just pray take a moment right now Pray that if there's somebody in here that says, you know what, I'm just not a reader. I have trouble reading. I have trouble understanding it. Lord, that you would set a fire in their heart. Like never before. To open up your words of life and words of truth. I pray for that person, Lord, that the more they get the more they would want of you. And the more you reveal yourself to them, Father, the greater they'll understand your power to be when they're going through the most difficult things that this world has to offer. Through those moments of uncertainty, those moments of true weakness, those moments where they feel alone, That it would not be said of us, oh, you don't know the power of Scripture. You don't know the power of God. You're mistaken. Correct our thinking, God. That we may see things, respond to them differently, and that you indeed would be glorified. All of this we ask in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.